Hey, everybody. Real quick, I just wanted to say there's there's going to be a trigger warning for discussions of sexual assault in this episode. Um, we don't get really graphic or anything, but it is discussed. So just be aware of that. All right. Here's the episode. And then when she's talking to her sister about how like how great it is to be held by a guy and they're all just so sweet when I guess that was before the parking garage thing. Not that I mean, that guy didn't force her like she he. She ran away and she didn't stop him. But I was like, I mean, it's not like they've all been sweet, but... Yeah. It's like she has this idealized man based off of her her posters, right? A little bit. Like, she has this dream of a man who's going to take her away from her boring life with her boring parents and her boring sister and show her the world and be sweet to her and make all her dreams come true. And I think that's all right out of the story, right? Like, that that's that's how Connie is. And Arnold Friend shows up as the manifestation of that desire, but like a wolf in sheep's clothing version of it. Welcome, friends, to episode 222 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm writer Luke Elliott. And I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And this week we discuss the 1966 short story by Joyce Carol Oates, Where Are You Going? Where Have You Been? And the 1985 film directed by Joyce Chopra, Smooth Talk. And joining us at the drive-in this week is Laura of the Why the Book Wins podcast and YouTube channel, Welcome to the show, Laura. Thank you. Yeah, this is awesome to be here. <laughs> Big fan of the podcast, so it's really cool to now be featured on the podcast. Thanks. We're so excited to have you. Uh, I mentioned before the recording, like, I'm so excited to pick your brain because we, you know, I feel like we're family because we we kind of do the same sort of thing yeah. with, with these projects in a, in a way that, like, any other movie or book podcast might not. Yeah, it's really cool. Uh, I'm so glad to have you on. I think we've been connected on Instagram for a while. I remember seeing your channel sort of start up and I've seen your your subscriber base flourish. Seems like you're doing well over there. Uh, I've seen some of your videos. I watched your one on The Shining. Right, because I talk about you guys because I yeah. listened to your episode for that one. So yeah. You know I had to go see what you said. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's 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 a good channel and I, and I do recommend people check it out. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about like what you do on your show and, and what makes you different? So Why the Book Wins, the podcast is just book versus movie episodes. And they are shorter. I don't go quite as in detail. They tend to be about 30 minutes, so it's not quite as detailed. But then I also have a YouTube channel, and so I film my book first movie episodes, but the YouTube channel also just has like different book content. And I have a book collection, so that's like my two main things on YouTube is showing off my books and doing book first movie episodes. I was gonna compliment your collection is very cool behind you there. I see, is that Sir Gawain right there? Yeah, Sir Gawain. We just covered that recently, yeah. I recently got this edition of The Shining. Oh man, that's wow. awesome! So, yeah, yeah. I, I've seen so, I've seen some of your book uh, YouTube videos where you just like show off some of these cool editions you have, and I'm very jealous of that. I don't have space for that. I live in a small condo, so I, I just like uh-huh. can't. I already do collect books, but I can't collect a lot of books. One day, if I get more space, I'll start doing that because it, it does seem uh, pretty fun. 
Yeah, it's been a really fun hobby. I've gotten really bad about it. Like I, I don't have the space and I just like don't care. I'm just buying stuff and I'm like, I'm, I'll figure it out eventually. Like it's kind of yours is so organized and curated. It looks awesome. Mine is just like a total disaster and there's books everywhere. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, I'm glad that we actually got to get you on and we decided to cover a, a uh, short story film combo uh, that probably isn't something that a lot of people have heard of, uh, but maybe. Uh, I assume if you clicked on this, you've at least heard of of something, or maybe you were just curious. I don't know. But um, it is the the short story by Joyce Carol Oates, Where Are You Going? Where Have You Been? She is a famous author, so maybe you've heard that name. Um, and then there was this film adaptation, Smooth Talk, which I had never seen, and I don't think either of you had seen seen as well, right? Nope. Yeah. So uh, I was curious about it. You know, I saw that it had a pretty good uh, reviews on, like, uh, Rotten Tomato and stuff and I was like okay this is it's a short story I had read when I was in college um, that sort of made an impression on me and I remember really liking it but that was you know years ago and I was I was curious to see how it held up um, and yeah that's that was kind of my place going into this I think I also read a novel by her called Expensive People for like an American Lit class um, but I barely vaguely remember that novel I, I think it was good but I could barely tell you what it was about but yeah what was your experience with Joyce Carol Oates had you ever read anything by her I had never read anything by her I recognized the name but I didn't know anything about her really although I have a copy of Haunting of Hill House and she wrote the introduction oh cool and so so I like had that association association that was have all. you covered that one yet no, I'm kind of scared to read it. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be too scary for me. But it is pretty spooky. But yeah, this story wasn't what I expected. I don't know what I expected, but it definitely takes a turn and has like almost a supernatural feel that I. Okay. Yeah. So I hadn't read anything by her prior to this. Nice. What about you, James? You ever Are you even familiar with the name? I don't think so, no. And, uh, you know, you, I remember there's been, we've had good history with you recommending things that you're like, oh, I really liked the story when I read it in school. And, you know, I knew that it would probably be really good because of that. But I was expecting, and I'm going to talk about expectations probably more in a little bit, but this this kind of struck me from the poster that from it being like a, it came out in 85 and then this story. I kind of thought it was going to be a romantic drama. That was sort of the vibe I was getting. <laughs> oh, good. I was hoping you would think that. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of what I thought, too. A couple times we, we would look at the list of films and, and well, adaptations in general that we wanted to cover. And you kept bringing this one up. And I was like, I don't know. I didn't know anything about it. I just thought it was like a, you know, dramatic romance story and uh that's not really what it is and it was shocking and upsetting in ways and uh just there's a lot to talk about with it yeah so for the listener if you have not read the story uh, i will link it in the show notes it is free to read online i do recommend reading it um before we talk about it because we're going to spoil the hell out of it um but i think it's it's a good one and um I don't want to like, yeah, I don't want to say much more than than I think it's worth reading because it does uh, get into spoilers as soon as you start talking about it. But it's not like it's not gory or anything. You don't have to worry about that. It's just a little bit. It's troubling and um, it's well, it's well written and kind of tense. I, I don't know. How, how would you describe it for someone who has never read it? Yeah, I would say tense is a good word. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely literary. Uh, there's layers to it. There's more to dig into than what's necessarily on the surface. Yeah, it's a short story, but yeah, there is just so much to it and so much symbolism and metaphors. And yeah, so there's a lot to it. Hint of the supernatural <laughs> you mentioned earlier, which I was going to ask James uh, about that specifically, if he thought that there was any supernatural elements, because I think that's sort of an interpretation that mm -hmm. you can have from reading it. Um, 
without getting into spoilers i felt like there was a that there was that moment that stood out to me as supernatural that gave me permission to think of the story outside of it being this realism story it gave me permission to think of it as a metaphor to start digging into maybe some allegory that's being drawn yeah before we move into uh anything else did you enjoy it like, that's ultimately the test of it. Like, did you enjoy the story? I did. It made me want to read more of her books. And I so I was looking through some that she's written. And it seems like a lot of hers deal with these intense topics and, like, traumas and, like, heavy reads. But, yeah, so I definitely plan on reading more of her in the next few months. What about you, James? It took me on a journey. It took me for a loop. Uh, expectations are funny that way. Like, I thought we were going to get this sort of, like, 50s, 60s dated look on what romance was and how... Uh, it's like such a patriarchal society then. And, and uh, I was like, oh man, I, I don't really like, like where this is going. And then it took me down a lot of different journeys. Uh, and then the film sort of re- also helps to like recontextualize some of the things that I was kind of seeing in the story. I think the film does help to sort of accentuate some of those things and, and explain them a little more, give a little more background. Yeah. Uh, I, I have a lot of thoughts on the movie, but we're going to save those for the second half of the episode. Um, so for me, for the, for the story rereading it, um, I was again struck by the uh, skill on display. I think she's an excellent writer. Her prose reminds me a little bit of Cormac McCarthy. Um, not necessarily in her lack of punctuation. She's not, she's not quite the same in that regard, but she uses the word and a lot. And we talked about how that was part of his um, appeal as he had this sort of flow that felt very conversational. Um, and yet was beautiful. And, and I found that to be the same here. Like, um, not only that, but it also kind of mimicked the, the headspace of our main character and it kind of floated along and was very bouncy. Um, and I found that quite appealing. And I, I remember always enjoying her prose every time I've read her stuff. Um, and then there's ob- obviously this like kind of surprise that, that is in the story. And this time I was able to engage more with, I think, the content because... I wasn't as surprised by it. I kind of knew going in what I was looking for, and I was able to like look for all the clues going forward and um, do more research into it. So if that sounds interesting, stick around, and we're going to talk about some bio. We'll do a quick summary, and then we'll talk about specifics. So Joyce Carol Oates is an American writer who published her first book in 1963 and has since published 58 novels, a number of plays and novellas, and many volumes of short stories, poetry, and nonfiction. Her novels Black Water... What I Lived For and Blonde, and her short story collections The Wheel of Love, Lovely Dark Deep Stories, were each finalists for the Pulitzer Prize. She has won many awards, including the National Book Award, two O. Henry Awards, the National Humanities Medal, and the Jerusalem Prize. Oates taught at Princeton University from 1978 to 2014, and she is currently a visiting professor at the University of California, Berkeley, where she teaches short fiction. Uh, so I read a little bit about her life. She was born in Lockport, New York, uh, where she grew up in a farm outside of that uh, fairly small town. Um, seemed like she was a you know lower middle class family, um, and she eventually would go on to college uh, at Syracuse, I believe, and immediately started showing this this talent for writing. Um, her first novel would be published called With a Shuddering Fall in 1964 when she was 26 years old. And then in 1966, I guess at 28, she published Where Are You Going, Where Have You Been? Which is the story we're talking about. And it is dedicated to Bob Dylan. Um, And she said she wrote it after listening to his song, It's All Over Now, Baby Blue. 
The story is loosely based on the serial killer Charles Schmid, also known as the Pied Piper of Tucson. Um, it has been anthologized many times and adapted into the film Smooth Talk, starring Laura Dern in 1985, which we'll be talking about later. In 2008, Oates said of her, all her published work, she is most noted for Where Are You Going? Where Have You Been? Which, yeah, that's interesting, right? Like something you write that early on, and that's the one that everybody keeps coming back to. I wonder how she feels about that. Uh, so as you mentioned earlier, Laura, frequent topics in her work include rural poverty, uh, sexual abuse, class tensions, desire for power, female childhood and adolescence, and occasionally the supernatural. Um, in the 1990s and 2000s, she wrote several uh, suspense novels under the pen names Rosamond Smith and Laura Kelly. Um, so she, she is a very prolific author, which has sometimes been used as a criticism of her. Because um, she's written, like I said, 58 novels, sometimes two a year, which in the literary world is quite a bit. Um, and so it seems like a lot of critics were struggling to keep up and felt like, you know, she, she, she can't be writing great work if she's writing this much. Um, uh, which is, is kind of a weird criticism, but I, I, I guess I can see it. I don't know. It's, it, the, the literary world is a little strange, um, and it has its own things that I've, I'm only adjacent to now that I'm more of a genre writer. Um, but there is this, like, there's a lot of weird preconceived notions about, uh, literary authors and like how much time they should be spending on novels and, and whether or not they should ever be trying to make money. It's like this weird, weird argument. And her writing this many books to some people might look like she's trying to like cash in, which will then, which is then look as lesser. And it, it, interesting. It, yeah. There's a lot of weird perceptions that go on in the literary world where it's like, yeah, you should make enough money to get by, but like any more than that. And you're. You're like selling out. It's the craft. It's about the craft, Luke. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's weird. Um, and she she's kind of famous. And so, of course, you got a lot of people who don't like that she's famous. Uh, this might be kind of random. It's not like it necessarily has to do with this. But uh, I thought it was interesting because she's from New York. And I was born in New York. And then she taught at Berkeley. And I used to live in Berkeley. Oh, wow. And then it's based on like the Pied Piper of Tucson. I used to live in Tucson. Oh. And then I there's a lot of Lauras in the story because we have <laughs> Laura Dern and there's a character named Laura. Yeah. Um, but. Hey, the happenstance. That's interesting. Uh, did you, Had you heard of the Pied Piper of Tucson when you lived there? No, okay. but I looked him up after this story. And yeah, it's pretty upsetting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so I, uh, I was also curious. I actually like I listened to a lot of true crime. Um, and I was like, oh, maybe this will be somebody I've heard of. And I looked into him. I'm like, no, not any of my podcasts have covered this guy, which I was a little bummed because I've listened to all these episodes and I'm like, come on, couldn't it be somebody who's actually, I actually know about. Um, but I went and found a podcast episode on the morbid podcast. I think it was, I'll, I'll link it in the show notes too. Um, hopefully I can remember all this. Um, but anyway, uh, where, where they broke down and it was actually a good episode. So I do recommend it. Um, and, and they talked about his story. So I, I found out about this guy, Charles Schmidt and how the inspiration was drawn from him, which is like a whole, there's a lot of angles to the story, right? Like you have the literary, like, you know, possibly supernatural metaphors going on. Then you have like the real guy and some of the real stuff he did. Um, and then you have Joyce Carol Oates trying to write about like being a young girl and that kind of stuff. And it all intersects in a really interesting way. And on top of that, like not to jump ahead, but the numbers that are in the story, yeah. like that reflects a story from the Bible that also is kind of similar to all of this. So yeah, it's just so many layers to it. That's the uh, the most commonly held 
I think, uh, thought about it. I was looking into that, too, a little bit. I was going to ask James if he had any theories. I don't know if you looked any of that up. I had no idea. I didn't know what that meant. There had to be a backstory to it of, in yeah. some kind, right? It's so, she's, like, as far as I know, or at least as far as I could find, I don't think she's ever, like, confirmed what it means. Mm-hmm. But it's mm-hmm. more just that people have all these theories, and it seems like it's coalesced around certain theories, which we'll, we'll talk about. Do you guys know what the Bible verse was, like, in reference to? Was it? Yeah. Some, does it matter? Okay, if it fits, then it probably is that. I think it I think it's pretty compelling that it would be. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> uh okay, so I, I guess I'll just mention Charles Schmid uh was the serial killer who killed three women in Tucson. Um and he became known as the Pied Piper of Tucson because he was this older guy who befriended all of these teenagers and he was he was very popular in these social circles and he befriended his victims and they like came willingly with him into his car um, and he brutally killed three women. Uh, so terrible guy. Um, also, uh, one of the things that I found fascinating is he was known to wear so much makeup that it was described as being pan like pancake makeup. He drew a big mole on his face in like black with like some sort of black uh, marker or some sort of makeup to make it look like he had a mole, like a some sort of beauty mark, I guess. Um, he would sometimes, uh, he dyed his hair black. He tried to style it like Elvis. Um, and he was very short. He was five foot three. And so he would buy oversized cowboy boots and he would fill them with, with crumpled up cans and, and, uh, folded up napkins and he put them in the bottoms so that he would be, he would look like he was taller than he was. Um, and I think some of those details make it into the story, right? Yeah. Definitely do, yeah. That doesn't seem like the most efficient way to, to stuff your boots with crushed up cans. <laughs> sounds painful. No, it sounds like he probably walked around all weird like like uh, Arnold Friend ends up doing in this story. <laughs> um, okay, so let's read. I'm going to read a quick summary, and then we can, we can finally get into the meat of it. So, Connie is an attractive, self-conscious 15-year-old girl with a strained relationship with her mother who constantly compares her to her sister, who is plain and hardworking. Connie enjoys going out with her friends to the mall in a drive-in where the older kids hang out. It is there that she first sees Arnold Friend, a stranger with a gold convertible covered with cryptic writing. He says, quote, gonna get you, baby, to her and turns away from them. Later, her family goes to a barbecue, leaving Connie home alone. Connie enjoys listening to music and simply being alive. A car comes up the driveway. It's Arnold Friend, who asks Connie to come with him and his friend on a ride. Connie is initially unsure of him and declines. He insists and addresses her by name, and when she asks him how he knows it, he tells her he knows her family won't be home for a while and that he has been asking around. It suddenly occurs to Connie to ask how old he is. He deflects the question, telling her he's only 18. Connie can see that he is probably closer to 30 and becomes frightened. He tells her that he is her lover, and she threatens to call the police. He says if she does, he'll come in the house. She goes to lock the door, and he tells her that he could easily break it down. Connie tells him her father is coming, and Arnold threatens to hurt her family when they return if she doesn't come out to him. Connie retreats inside her house. Though she picks up her phone to call for help, she is unable to bring herself to use it, Instead, she screams. After he continues gently, menacingly threatening her from outside the house, Connie finally comes out. So, initial thoughts. Uh, what, what did you think of this, of this, uh, Laura? Yeah, so the first part, you know, it's just about Connie being a young girl and 
uh, you know, liking the attention she's getting from guys and all of this. And I was enjoying it. And then also the stuff with her mom and their relationship. But yeah, and then it just takes a turn when Arnold shows up. And I guess because the movie is called Smooth Talk, I thought the guy would be more smooth and convincing or something. But he just gets like right to it. And he's really weird about it and creepy. And then, yeah, just that supernatural element. And then it made me wonder, like, is this even really happening or... Like, is he a real person? Is he? Is it symbolic of the devil? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it was not what I was expecting. So I want to I want to focus in on that first part because um, you know it's always good when we can have a woman on the podcast and pro- provide a, a perspective we don't always have. She's thinking a lot about her sort of own beauty, right? Like she's like, I'm beautiful. All these guys like me. Mom's jealous of me because she doesn't look as beautiful and she's not as young as I am. She thinks about her sister in kind of similar disparaging ways. She she seems sort of entitled because of this belief that she is sort of owed something from the world. Um, I It made me a little uncomfortable because, and this is true in the movie too, which we'll get to. Um, it started to feel a little bit like we were positioning her as like somehow being like complicit in what happens to her or like a little victim blamey, right? Like she's setting herself up for this. I'm not sure if that's where the story, what the story's saying, but it, it kind of dances along that line for me. Um, and I'm just curious if you felt like this was realistic. Um, I know this was a different time, but like, how did, how did it strike you? Did you believe it? There were certain things that, yeah, I could relate to either with myself or other people I've known, especially like teenage years and like early adulthood Um, yeah, and she gets more into it in the movie, but just wanting to be wanted. And especially if like she has a bad relationship with her mom and just enjoying the attention she's getting from boys and thinking that she's better because of her looks and not that like every teenage girl is like that. But I thought it seemed realistic. Yeah. And then also like how naive she is because she's putting herself in these positions, but not I actually saw a quote that I thought was really well worded. She is an adolescent who thinks she's more in control of her sexual allure and more capable of handling the attention she receives for it than she is. Like she's not prepared and not just too naive to really realize what she's doing. She's just doing it because she's liking the attention. I was reading uh, Roger Ebert, like review of the film, and it still applies to the short story, but it's like her... Uh, her body was like outgrowing her mind at this point. Like she, so, so like the society and everyone's perceiving her in a certain way while she's still an, she's still a young girl coming into her own. Of course, she's interested in these desires that she has and things like that. But it it just kind of made me think like she chooses to like go chase boys and all these other things. But then there's this weird, and this honestly is prevailing through the whole story is the way that society and specifically older men sexualize young women, young girls, and and then see them as like prey. And that's like a lot of what the story turns into with this with this creepy character. So yeah, just just to think of like she's so naive, she's innocent. She she doesn't yeah. like understand how tough the world can be or how scary the world can be. And um, you know, whereas someone like her mother maybe does and it has her best interest at heart. And so um yeah, I bought I bought a lot of that. I love there was a detail in the story about how there are two different versions of herself. Oh, yeah, I like that, too. There's the version at home that she shows to her family, and then there's the version when she leaves the house. And she talks about she has, like, a shirt or a jersey that she wears it two different ways. Like, she wears it a certain way at home and a certain way when she's out. And I felt that was very true to life, right? Like, that's a a very true teenager thing, right? Like, Mm. 
and, and, you know, we all have different, you know, faces that we show different people, but especially when you're a teen, you have your family life and then you have your life where you're trying to sort of act older than you are and, and make an impression on the world. Um, and, and this story feels like there's, it's kind of highlighting an inherent danger that I think is specific to young women, but, you know, probably true for all young people about, um, where that can sometimes get you into trouble. I kind of took it, yeah, as like a cautionary tale yeah. to young girls, I guess, in particular, teenage girls. Yeah. Because, yeah, just where that road can take you. Because, yeah, like, I know it's myself and also others where when you're young and naive and you're wanting the attention, but like I said, like, you're not prepared for it, though. And so this is a good story to <laughs> make you really realize <laughs> what you could be getting yourself into. Yeah. It kind of feels like a, I mean, this sounds like I'm putting it down, but I do really like the story, but it feels a little bit like a, like an after school special, like cautionary, yeah. like show this to your child and make them afraid. Um, and it, I, I don't know, I guess that's the part of it that I, I'm still sort of divided about. Um, I, and I think it's partly because I, I feel like today we are just more aware of this. Like I think teenagers yeah. who are this age today are not this naive. Like they've been on the internet their entire lives. So they, they are just, you know, they, they have seen so much more and have been exposed to so much more. Um, I think it's rare to see people who are maybe quite this sort of sheltered as we see Connie is here. Any, any part of me that felt like it was a little bit like after school, especially was taken away by the fact that I felt there was a lot to dig into with this story, which we can talk, we can dig into and talk about the metaphor of all of it all now. Yeah. And, and the film definitely helped me realize some of this as well. Uh, in, in hindsight, you know, it, it kind of this idea of leaving home, leaving the safety of your home being, you know, someone enticing you to leave that, that like safety and innocence behind. And this is in a, like a really dark way. But the the idea of like there is that transition period when and and this specifically has a lot to do with like puberty and virginity I, is my you know perspective on it and the idea of like there is a, a moment of change and it's like there it can be too early for certain people after you lose your virginity say especially if you're younger it's hard to like look back at the world as a child when mm. that sort of has been taken from you, whether it was taken or willingly given, either way, it's still like a, a, an emerging into adulthood that I think you you just view the world differently. And I think that this story in a super dark, fucked up way was, you know, signaling some of those changes. Yeah, I, I think that's a good read of it. Um, one thing that always stood out to me about the story, and I think the thing that I like most about it is how expertly she draws out this this sort of meeting between Arnold Friend and and Connie, um, and I say she. I'm talking about Joyce Carol Oates. Um, she she creates tension and and a creepiness that that to me makes this story feel almost like a horror story. And the way she does it is by like these little weird details about things that are just slightly off about Arnold Friend, and she just starts to notice. Like, here's one thing that's a little bit weird. Here's another thing that's a little bit weird. Here's him overstepping one boundary and overstepping another boundary. Um, and it starts to pile together. And then Connie's mental state starts to change. And I feel like this is one of the best descriptive sections of a character who is starting to, like, panic. And maybe doesn't even realize that she's panicking. Um, but it comes across in the writing itself. And I could feel her panic when she picks up the phone and it's just making a noise at her and she can't even like 
comprehend what's happening. Like she's so panicking at this point, she's lost it. And you have to earn that. And she earns that by very slowly just dropping these little reveals about things being just slightly off. Like I have a, I have a quote here. She recognized all this and also the sing-song way he talked, slightly mocking, kidding, but serious and a little melancholy. And she recognized the way he tapped one fist against the other in homage to the perpetual music behind him. But all these things did not come together. And that's the thing. Like, he's doing all of these things that seem normal, but there's something a little off. He's, he's quoting things that were said last year by the kids, but not, it's not cool to say anymore this year. He's listening to the music that they all like, but he's, he's like, not keeping time the right way. Um, and so some, it's like there are these signals, these red flags going off, right? Yeah, it was definitely, uh, like, it's a very short story. Yep. But I was just pulled in so much, especially when Arnold Friend is part of the story where it's just you know, where a story can transport you and you're just there. And so, yeah, it was just so vivid and so unsettling and so creepy. Yeah. And then that friend in the car. Um, so there is a detail from the from the real life thing, um, which I'm not going to get into too many details of that because that that is very um, dark, true crimey stuff. But he did have a friend who he committed one of his first uh, murders with who uh rode out in a car with him i think and and the, and the girl they picked up so I, i'm wondering if that's why there's a friend in the car here i was looking into that too and i read the same thing where the charles guy he had a friend who was just listening to the radio and that's what ellie is doing in this story because yeah i was like what's like why is he here <laughs> and i want to read a section that i felt was one of the creepiest parts this is arnold talking to his friend hey she says you're kind of strange kind of strange arnold friend cried he pounded on the car to get Ellie's attention. Ellie turned for the first time, and Connie saw with shock that he wasn't a kid either. He had a fair, hairless face, cheeks reddened slightly as if veins grew too close to the surface of his skin. The face of a 40-year-old baby. <laughs> and that's such a weird description, and the moment where she realizes this guy's like 40, and he's acting like he's a kid, and he's just been silent the whole time listening to this radio, like... I, this is one of those moments of like each domino keeps falling of this being like a really bad situation. Um, yeah. And if you had any doubt, I think that's like one of the moments where, you know, this is really bad news. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's sort of moving around in this like herky jerky way too, right? Like he, his boots feel like they've been stuffed with something. Um, at one point they like one kicks out to the side in a weird angle. Um, he's like lurching against the wall. Like he seems to be moving. And, and I, I put this note down. I was like, do you remember Vincent D'Ofrano's character in Men in Black? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, the alien you know, skin. <laughs> yeah. I was kind of picturing that a little bit. Like he just doesn't look like he's comfortable in his in his in his man suit. Um, and I think that sort of underlines that maybe there's something kind of supernatural going on here, which I, I guess we should go ahead and talk about. Right. Like there's this there's this mysterious number 33 17 19 i think or 1917 i can't remember which order written on the side of his car and he says that's a secret code um and then and then the story just kind of leaves it there because she connie doesn't know what it means um and it's up to you i guess to do research outside of the story to find out what that means but uh i'm curious to know what you both thought upon initial reading before you had a chance to look it up like what did you make of that code I didn't know. I just yeah, I had no idea. I just didn't know. I'm sorry. So so for me, because I, I do follow a lot of true crime stuff, um, and I can't remember what I thought the initial time I read the story, and I, I did know some stuff going into this one, but um, I had forgotten about the code being a thing. I, I thought maybe it was like a reference to other victims, 
Hmm. Because I knew it was based off a serial killer. I was like, because serial killers often will take trophies or they'll they'll keep track of it in some way. Well, and, and in this story, too, the the way that he approaches his victims, too, he, like, wants her to come out of the house. He's like, I won't come inside unless you touch the phone. Like, he, that's all part of it for him, which is, equal, you know, even more creepy. Which, okay, so uh, so first off, I just thought maybe, maybe that's some sort of reference to, like, the ages of other victims or, or some sort of identifying number for different victims. Um, but then I didn't think much of it after that. Um, I want to know, before we talk about the theories behind it, James, did you think anything supernatural was going on in this story? No, I didn't, but... The, the whole X floating in the air moment where he like sort of writes a symbol or whatever mm-hmm. it was. And so Connie's perception, I think because she's starting to freak out a little bit, is like that it lingers in the air. This like symbol that he creates yeah. is lingering. And and like I said earlier, that sort of gave me permission to think like, oh, OK, so don't take everything like super literally or take it literally and see what else is being said here. I took it as like a like, yeah, it's time to dig into this a little deeper than just like what's actually happening on the surface and what this could represent. Um, I didn't think it was supernatural. Uh, I could see an argument for this sort of like, you know, devil sort of figure, but I, I, I don't think so ultimately. All right, what about you, Laura? Did you think supernatural initially? Uh, as it continued, yeah. Like just because he was just so off and weird and also like the fact that he wasn't forcing her to do anything. It had to be her choice. Mm-hmm. And that's so that made it seem like if it was uh if he wasn't an actual person. For example, if he was like the devil where like you have to choose yeah. to do it. I was getting like vampire vibes too, right? Like he wouldn't come he in the house in, unless yeah. <laughs> unless yeah. yeah unless he was invited or whatever. Yeah, and then the part about his boots, how like his feet were all weird, like that part like really creeped me out for some reason. Like that detail was just so weird. I can't believe that that was um, a real thing too. <laughs> yeah, guy. I did not read that. So yeah, that's so weird. I couldn't, I, I, would, I was surprised they didn't do the mole in the movie. I was kind of hoping for the mole because I also thought that was a really creepy detail that he used to paint this mole yeah. on his face. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, and the way it ends is just very ambiguous. And he says, which he's referring to the... Bob Dylan song where he says something about her blue eyes and she's like my eyes aren't blue so like why is he saying that but yeah so just as the story progressed it made it me feel like is he even a real person and and then as I was reading afterwards about different people's thoughts on it yeah there's people that say that he represents the devil and for example his shoes because like the devil has hoof feet and that's why his shoes are weird and Mm. yeah so uh I think my one of the things that I picked up on that that makes me think maybe supernatural too was how he knew so much oh mm-hmm. yeah he knew exactly what was going like he, on he can like look and see what's going on with her parents he knows the name of like all of her friends like it, like yeah he might have asked like asked around but it seems almost supernatural just how much he knows mm-hmm. um and he and the, when he's saying that he can see them doing certain things it feels like he can actually see them um so again it's like it's yeah it's it's it really is effective at ratcheting up that creepiness of not only is something scary happening and something threatening, but maybe something otherworldly, um, which just adds another layer. I love things that are more literary, too. Like the, the literary community loves to stick its nose up a genre sometimes. Yeah. And I love when something literary can like then dip into like, I don't know, is this a little bit genre-y? Oh, I mean, <laughs> they love to do that all the time. Right. Um, <laughs> and it's kind of ironic because, you know, people joke all the time about like, literary fantasy is is just called magical realism like things like that like there's they have different names for it right um because they don't want to get like sort of sullied by genre anyway so let's talk about the the bible theory so the bible theory is basically that if you count backwards i guess the books in the bible 33 back 
like back to front, you arrive at judges and then it's like 17, 19, right? Like first and chapter 19, verse 17. Yeah. 19, 17. Yeah. And it reads, when he looked and saw the traveler in the city square, the old man asked, where are you going? Where did you come from? So that seems to reference the title of this story. It's a little different, but pretty similar, right? So people have found that apparently the story itself is topically kind of interesting in, in that it's about like a concubine and I think someone gets murdered. I, I read over it real quickly and I was like, this happens in the Bible? Okay. Um. <laughs> yeah, I had the same thought when I was reading it. I was like, what? Like, this is like such a weird story to have in the Bible. And it yeah. gets kind of... Didn't didn't she get like chopped up weird. into 12 pieces or something? Yeah, and, like, like that's what happens at the end because she dies. And yeah, and then he like, cuts her and I was like, what the... How, what? <laughs> I love that Luke Luke did some biblical research for this episode. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Very unusual. Um, so uh, you know, people have said like, well, why would why would you count backwards from the end? That doesn't make any sense. And other people have countered that because he's the 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 devil, like he's not going to refer to it in the the right way. He's going to have read it backwards, I guess. And that all mm-hmm. that all seems plausible to me. I think that seems pretty convincing. Um, one other thing I noticed somebody said is that the if you total all the numbers together, they equal sixty nine. Which could be oh, just sort too. of implication yeah. of the sexual uh, undertones. Nice um, mm-hmm. going on here. <laughs> nice. <laughs> the standard, like somebody has to say nice after the number sixty-nine. I don't think you have loud. to say it here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. So uh, I, you know, I think that's all pretty convincing. Again, I don't think she's ever said for sure if he is the devil or not. I, I think it's ambiguous. She's at least playing with that idea hinting at that it could be true. Again, the the real guy was bad enough and the stuff he did was awful and he wore weird clothes and makeup and, you know, these shoes that he would stuff. So a lot of that's based off the real guy. Yeah, I mean, you guys make good points. You, you know, you're kind of selling me on the whole supernatural thing a little bit. So Yeah. I looked into the song a little bit too. Um, there is the final uh, verse here that I'll read that also seems very applicable to the story. Uh, This is from Bob Dylan's song. He says, leave your stepping stones behind. Something calls for you. Forget the dead you've left. They will not follow you. The vagabond who's rapping at your door is standing in clothes that once that you once wore. Strike another match. Go start anew. It's all over now, baby blue. So maybe something about like leaving home, starting over, but there's a vagabond rapping on the door, wearing clothes that you once wore. So that seems like maybe kind of a reference to like the old styles or something. So there's something kind of sinister there, at least in, in, in like a certain kind of reading. And maybe that's how Joyce Carol Oates read it. In the story too, it, I think it says Connie says like she feels like she like knows him or recognizes him. Like not necessarily from the drive-in, but he seems like someone she might know. Yeah. So that kind of adds to the supernatural thing too. So the story ends with her leaving the house and going with Arnold and it's it, there's mention to like driving out into the world and he, I think he had mentioned a field at one point and uh, I think there's a heavy implication that things are not going to go well for Connie um, and especially if you read about the real guy it seems to me that that you know rape and murder is is the implication of what could happen here um, if you look at it as the devil at the very least it's you know I, I guess death or whatever the devil does to you. Maybe, maybe does doesn't she have too. to like battle him with a fiddle now or something like that? <laughs> <laughs> she forgot her fiddle at home. 
Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's 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 a dark ending. It's sort of ambiguous, right? We're left to fill it in on our own. Did you feel um, satisfied with the ending of this story? Did it feel like a, like a good Satisfied ending? is a weird word for, for the end of this story. <laughs> well, but I guess like, I mean in the sense of like, you weren't, were you, were you frustrated that it ended where it did or did you feel like it was a, a sort of appropriate ending for the story? So I personally, I love when books have like an ambiguous ending, yeah. which I know sometimes it could come off as lazy, like they didn't want to decide, but I love it when it's like that because then you can have such interesting conversations and it's up to your own interpretation, especially since there's things with the story that Joyce Carol Oates herself hasn't said either way. And so I like that she's not telling us even what she means by it. And yeah, so I really like the ending and it made me think and it made me want to research the story more and see what other people are thinking rather than if it was a straightforward ending. I don't know when writers tie up the endings too perfectly. I don't always like that because I'm like, yeah. I want to be able to decide what I think happens. <laughs> so I really like the ending. Yeah, I agree. It's a it's a more bold decision, in my opinion, to, to have that ambiguity and maybe at the end of your story, because you are saying I'm confident in the fact that I delivered on the vision of what I had. And I want you to sort of like finish, like like interpret what, what you think this is about here. And I uh, yeah, I tend to like those kind of stories as well. In this case, you know, I, I enjoyed it for the sake of the story. I thought that it was like harrowing and s sad and, and like, but yeah something to walk away and think about. And I love that in, in storytelling in general is like, like giving you something to chew on and think about later. Yeah. And, and that, that like, I love that kind of stuff. It's like, it's just like a puzzle that you put together. So of course anything could happen. You could write a story like this and then have the end, you know, she goes with him and then fights him off and escapes and, you know, learns from her mistake. And, and, you know, you could have an ending like that, but ending it where it does tells the reader, like, to me, it tells the reader to look back at the story you just read. The answer to what happens to her is in there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think there is an answer. That's why I feel confident in saying that things do not go well for her. Um, because if you look back at the story you just read and everything that led up to this point, it is heavily implying what's going to happen when she leaves. Um, so it, and it's interesting because it's, it's ambiguous in a sense, but not, not like... When you when you think of it that way, right? It actually does have an ending, and they just she just kind of forces you to draw it out of the rest of the text. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, even though it's ambiguous. Yeah, when I was reading, I definitely didn't feel like it was going to be happy. <laughs> like it's definitely something bad. And so dark. you you didn't get good, you didn't go to the end and go like, well, what happened? Did she get away? Like, yeah, no, yeah, I took it to me and like things were going bad. Um, she had her one chance to get away, and she did not succeed you know she got too scared and just gives in and at that point it's clear that she's she's totally given into this and that part too how he's able to have this like he, it's almost he doesn't hypnotize her but he has this allure over her for some reason even yeah. though he's being so queer creepy and weird about it and yet she is like powerless against him for some reason so it's like he knows all the right things to say to sort of pick at her insecurities and and sort of pull apart any defenses she has and she gets so scared it felt like to me like she just can't put up any sort of fight anymore okay i think it's time to move on to the movie which has its own interpretation and uh we can talk about uh james you want to tell us about smooth talk yeah sure thing so smooth talk uh the director here joyce chopra is an american director and writer of feature films and television graduated from brandeis university in waltham massachusetts 
A few months after her graduation from Brandeis, she and a partner opened a European-style coffee house near Harvard Square at 47 Mount Auburn Street, quickly turning it into a music club, Club 47. Uh, the reason I'm bringing this up, where everyone from Joan Baez to Bob Dylan performed. The club was the subject of the 2012 film For the Love of the Music, shown at the Boston International Film Festival. Hmm. Interesting Bob Dylan connection there. Yeah. And her name's Joyce, which I think is really interesting, right? <laughs> and and <laughs> the, the same the sim- way. there are a lot of similarities in terms of, uh, of content of what they create. So Chopra's own film career began with documentary filmmaking in 1963 and gained much recognition by feminist film scholars with her autobiographical documentary, Joyce at 34, in 1974. The film stars Chopra and examines the effect her pregnancy had on her filmmaking career. The documentary received the American Film Festival Blue Ribbon Award. The film explores the issues surrounding women when pursuing the creation of a family while also creating a professional career. Uh, Chopra transitioned into filmmaking around the mid-80s after meeting and working with Tom Cole, who would eventually uh, become her husband. One of their first collaborations was a PBS American Playhouse production, Medal of Honor Rag, in 1982. Her first narrative feature-length film, Smooth Talk, 1985, was nominated for the Independent Spirit Award for Best Director and won the Grand Jury Prize at the 1985 Sundance Film Festival. In addition to directing her own work, Chopra is part of BY Kids, a nonprofit pairing master filmmakers with youth from around the world to create short documentaries. So I thought that was awesome and worth mentioning. Yeah. Elevate the craft and to to foster the next generation. I think that's so cool. Yeah, that's awesome. In a similar kind of way to the author of the story, uh, Joyce Chopra, like a lot of her stories are about feminism and about transitions within a woman's life. Did she make any other narrative films? Yeah. So all I see here is um, Lemon Sisters and then everything else is TV and documentary. Wow. Okay. Well, this is a cool movie to to uh, be your your main feature. I mean, also a debut. I think it's well made. Um, I was also like I had, we we found it on the Criterion Channel, which you you told me about. When I looked for it, it wasn't available anywhere else. You can't even rent it, and I think that's a little weird for a movie that like was a Sundance kind of winner. Like it's a pretty important movie in 85 isn't that long ago i mean i know it's a long time ago but like it's not like 25 um and yet this movie if it wasn't for the criterion channel you wouldn't even be able to watch it unless you could like go find a physical copy somewhere and that's what i love about the criterion channel is like they're they're preserving film history they they get eyes on uh films for internationally and otherwise like that wouldn't you know see the light of day and and there's a lot of cool like a lot of filmmaker uh, spotlight stuff where like really famous f- filmmakers will spotlight, you know, lesser known projects and things like that. And just, I- I've always been a big fan of it. I've been, uh, my collection is ever growing with like some of my favorite Criterion Blu-ray. And it's just like something that I, as soon as they created Criterion Channel, I subscribed to and have, haven't canceled my subscription just because I think they're doing, in terms of streaming services and, and things out there, I think they're doing some of the most important work they do. Uh, I guess I should have mentioned this as well. They do like restoration. They they focus on like uh, best image quality that you can get because a lot of times what you're getting with streaming services is a lot of compressed files, great uh, sound design, like really well mixed sound. Uh, so they're just giving you like the ele- the best possible product um, for these Blu-rays and and you know their their collection is is really cool and I just 
I'm so glad that we got to talk about them on the podcast. Yeah, I looked on uh, Amazon Prime first. And whenever something isn't on there, that's always kind of weird. Yeah. But yes, and I Googled it and I had a Criterion subscription already. So I was like, oh, like I hadn't expected it to be there. But <laughs> I think this is the first time we've we've done, you know, 200 something episodes. I don't remember how many projects right now, but this is the first time we've had to go to the Criterion collection for a, for anything. We've been able to rent or find everything else. It's wild to think that like movies could slip through the cracks and just be forgotten about and, and, and inaccessible to people. Yeah. And a Laura Dern film, you know, yeah. like, like, you know, and Joyce Chopra, like you said, it was, a, it was award nominated and, and won. Yeah. I want to hear general thoughts really quickly. Just what did you guys think in terms of this film? I mean, some of my first thoughts was that it was just so eighties. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> but, uh, so that was kind of fun, but yeah, specifically Laura Dern, like, I feel like she's an actress. Everybody knows her, but I feel like she's not talked about enough. And she was 18 in this, and she was amazing. So that's, like, the standout thing. Oh, and then Treat Williams, who plays Arnold Friend. I thought they were both great. But specifically Laura Dern, I was just really impressed with her in this. Yeah, she did Blue Velvet soon after with David Lynch. Mm-hmm. This was, like, the beginning of her career. And then, you know, soon, maybe 10 years later... No, not even 10 years later, she would be in Jurassic Park and then she would continue to just, you know, she's been working in, in tons of stuff ever since. Yeah, Laura Dern's great. Um, you know, I, I she's someone who I've always, I guess I feel like I've grown up with her because Jurassic Park was one of my favorite movies as a kid. Mm-hmm. So it was weird seeing her in a, a different age than I remember her from Jurassic Park because I like... That's that's the way she has been forever for me. <laughs> um, but it was cool, and she did a great job. And um, this movie looked great. Like I thought, it, 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 considering there wasn't that many sets, um, she did a lot with what she had. And and there were some shots around that house that were absolutely gorgeous. Notably, like w- once it, uh, Arnold Friend comes around, like some of the you know the filmmaking starts to really emphasize the the gravity of the situation. Yeah. I thought the pacing went well, too. It's only like an hour and a half or something, but I was engaged the whole time and it went by quick. Yeah, there's something to be said for that like 90 minute mark. Huh? That's why people <laughs> I love a good 90 minute movie. Like, you know, I love a good long movie, too, but it, yeah. it was like perfect length. This I mean, movie. you're basing off a short story. I think it's probably wise to keep it a little shorter. So 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 this movie adds quite a bit to the story. Yeah, it's a lot early. Um, we see more of Connie's life. We meet her friends. We see we see her hanging out at the mall and just like a such a, a nostalgic scene. <laughs> right now, I was you know I wasn't like I was born in '85, so I was not in the mall at '85, obviously. But it was still going in the '90s. It was still a cool place to be. Maybe not as cool as it was in the '80s when it was like the cool place to be. Um, and that was pretty. It was it was it was nice to see it like. At the time, like this movie was made in 85. So like this is showing how things are right now versus like Stranger Things doing a throwback where you're seeing the 80s through a sort of like nostalgic lens, um, whereas this was just showing the modern world in a way. Um, and then now the, the nostalgia all comes from me. And it's like the the, the outfits they're wearing, um, like the stripes and the fishnets and the, 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 the like. <laughs> There's like a pastel yeah. uh, paint splatter on like her bathing suit later. And there's like certain things, the hairstyles that are just so 80s. And, and um, it was amazing to see them sort of in their natural habitat because like the people <laughs> don't, aren't even aware that, 
you know, I'm looking at it and feeling nostalgia. I think that what we like growing up in the 90s and even the two, early 2000s, like you like I, I became a teenager in the 2000s. But growing up, I'm always looking at the cool kids in the movies and the yeah. teenagers in the movies and stuff. They're always in the 80s and, the, and you know, in <laughs> the, true, at the mall yeah. and everything in the 90s. So like being informed by that. But let me let me read this short little bit here of this of the plot so that we can really talk about all of this. Connie Wyatt is a restless 15-year-old who is anxious to explore the pleasures of her sexual awakening. Before she enters her sophomore year in high school, she spends the summer moping around her family farmhouse. Connie passes the time cruising the local shopping mall with her friends and flirting with boys. However, when an actual date leads to heavy petting, she escapes from the boy's car. At a hamburger joint, an older man confides to her, I'm watching you, and proves this soon after. One afternoon, her mother and June warn Connie to be careful with whom she flirts, and she is left alone in the house while her family goes to a barbecue. So yeah, we were already talking about this sort of nostalgia trip. Something that I have to talk about at this point, too, is this movie was also based around uh, the director Joyce Chopra's previous documentary, Girls at 12. In addition to the short story, this sort of informed the documentary followed three girls' everyday lives for about six months. Uh, and several moments were replicated to establish Connie's character as a typical teenager during the first half of the half of this movie. So it's cool to see her work returning. And I think that it really did do a good job early on of selling us on Connie as a character, just normal teenager, um, you know, relatable to other teenagers of the time. And then also the innocence of that and flirting with boys and then you know, running into those weird guys in the mall who were like, oh, come with me, honey, like weird, like just like weirdly pushy and stuff. And and like dealing with like sweet guys and weird guys like that her own age or close to her own age. And then how that compares to some creepy older dude later on, Uh, like setting all of that up within the characters, I think, you know, because it's a short story, it's it's brief and it's quick and it does its job really, really well in this medium to get that extra bit of character building. I think it helps you to like buy into the character and, and like go along with these dramatic events. Yeah, I enjoyed that. They elaborated more on Connie as a person. Also, her relationship with her mom was a bigger thing in the movie for sure, too. I wanted to ask you what what your take was on that, because I, I agree that that was like a, sort of a central focus of the movie was this relationship with her mother. It's so contentious. Um, and her mother really just seems to like want her to help around the house sort of contribute. Um, Not be so selfish. Yeah. And they're, they're just at odds for the majority of the film. Um, What would, what were, what was the filmmaker trying to say with that, I guess? And, and how did it work for you or not work for you? I mean, I personally, I thought the mom was being sort of juvenile with the way she dealt with the situation because Connie, yeah, she's being a brat. But the way the mom, like, well, for starters, she, early on in the movie, she says the line where, like, I look in your eyes and all I see are a bunch of trashy daydreams. And that line, I think, was in the story, too, but it wasn't spoken in dialogue. But, yeah, so that line, I'm like, man, like, that's harsh. Like, she's just a 15-year-old kid. Yeah, she's dumb. But so it seemed like the mom was acting out in a childish way. And then rather than... Which I read, I recently read like how to win friends and influence people. So like how to talk to someone in an actual constructive way. <laughs> and it's not constructive to tell someone like you're being a brat and you're this and you're that. It's better to encourage the positive. And the mom obviously isn't doing that at all. And then there are a few times where, I mean, the mom tries to reach out and she's like, you know, like I miss this. 
but then Connie like pushes her away. But then there's other times where Connie maybe is wanting to reach out, but then the mom pushes her away. And so, yeah, I think a lot of this is like universal teenage things. Like it, it makes me think about times that I'm like, oh, I regret how much of a shit I was like, just like giving my parents attitude for no reason. And I think I like I bought that like as a the teenager, like thinking back to being a teenager and just being like, why did I not listen to my parents at all? Why did I just want to be a rebel? You know, all these things. And and uh, there's a lot of like film references within this. Obviously, like the James Dean references, like in multiple places. But this like rebel without a cause thing was like kind of popping up to me as well. Like th- this transition into a teenager and you want to be an adult, but you're still a child. And a lot of that stuff was at play. I think she even has a poster of James Dean. In I think her so. Room yeah. In movie. Yeah. If it looks a lot like. Arnold friend when he shows up, right? Like he's wearing like almost that same outfit and he's got a similar hairstyle. Yeah. I don't know. I, I guess, I guess the, the mother relationship, um, it, it was, it was pretty good. I guess I just wasn't quite sure where they were going with it. And it felt like they didn't know either. <laughs> like, um, other than just to just say they're at odds. And then at the end, it did wrap mm-hmm. up pretty neat. Yeah. A little did, too neat yeah, at the didn't... end. Like it was very quick. Like, Oh, I, I'm sorry. Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know. It, it felt like there needed to be something. There was like a scene missing between them or something that I needed. Um, the slap was was a big moment that happens um, where her mother slaps her. Um, and she apologizes for it later, but she's sort of reacting to something that she doesn't even know about. Like, she's not privy to. So I don't know if that's just supposed to be intuition or what. Um, it was kind of strange. I don't. I felt like that part was kind of muddled. It felt like that was the the sort of central relationship of the of the movie that they were trying to explore. And I just wasn't quite sure where the movie came down on it as to like what, what the sort of message is there. And, and I mean, I do think that there's something about like the messiness of, like I said, the people's lives, like the mother isn't perfect, like does something awful, slaps her. And it, it like life is like that. You know what I mean? People do dumb stuff. And even as a parent, as a, as a child, like whatever it is, I, I get what you're saying about like a scene missing. I agree with that for sure. Well, anyway, I, one of the scenes here early on that I thought was absolutely beautiful, um, Connie comes out to stand by her father who is sitting on his uh, lawn chair and he starts talking about how he's like, how, how good life is and how he has his own lawn chair that he can leave out. And he's looking out and like to the right of frame, there's this beautiful sunset in the woods. And then there's, she's standing by the house. She's leaning on the, the post. He's kind of splayed out on this chair. And then inside you see lit up this room that's like all pink and has been painted. And just the, the different kinds of light all on the on camera. I was like, that had to be hard to get, right? Like you're like try and like look at a, a, a sunset and then see anything else that and not have it get completely messed up. You're saying um, exposing for it. Yeah. Like having the correct exposure. Yeah. Yeah. It, it felt like that was a, a tricky one. And yet it landed and looked really good. And, and um, it, it almost looked like a painting. Like I, I was I was quite impressed with that that moment. Yeah. And I enjoyed the relationship she had with her dad, which they had a better relationship yeah. than she and her mom. He's kind of clueless, but, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's a dad, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, not the most well-rounded character, but I guess... A dad in the 80s, especially. Yeah, true. Okay, so I, one thing that I, I felt like was kind of missing for me is the the suspense and sort of tension of the story um, that really doesn't show up until Arnold Friend arrives... And that happens pretty late in the movie, like in the last half hour. So an hour of that movie has none of that. 
And I felt like you, I mean, like you see him once, I guess. Um, and, and the only tension that arises is there is a sense that maybe she's being sort of dangerous and she's being sort of, um, I don't know. Like she's not look, seeing all the, the, the potential threats out there. It felt very motherly to me. Like this felt like a movie made by a mother who's like worried about her daughter. I don't know. Like, uh, where, where is your kid right now? She's hanging out at the drive-in with boys. Oh no. I, I don't know. Like that, that was the perspective I was getting. There's a couple of scenes uh, that are key too, right? Like the, the sort of opening scene, they like trust this hitchhiker. Yeah. Or they trust this guy. I like how the car, car kind of swerves towards them at the last second before he picks them up. And I don't know if that was on purpose or accidental or what, but I thought it was a nice little like hint of danger. Like, yeah, it almost looks like it's going to hit them. Right. Yeah. And that, that kind of stuff builds up. And then we get the big one where she like goes and hooks up with this guy and then, uh, she like her friend like gets caught by her dad or whatever and she's like left out in the and that's really scary like the idea of being out by yourself at night at like 15 years old or whatever she's supposed to be and then having to either walk home or whatever ends up happening and people are like rolling up on her and like that's like the opposite end of the hitchhiking spectrum right so like she she during the day she hitchhikes with her friends but then at night she's by herself and these people roll up on her and i was like holy shit what's gonna happen now just seeing that and that that continued to build that tension and that danger i think also that guy like he took her into a parking garage like the first guy took her out to like look at the city at least like a makeout point right (laughs) Right. yeah (laughs) (laughs) well he's is that the guy who also like threatened Mm -hmm. to hit her at one point they were flirt they're having flirtatious conversation oh yeah he said something about like like, i'll give you a fat lip if you keep talking like that or something i was like oh god (laughs) Jesus, yeah, what a, that's an awful thing to say. I wonder, apparently that stuff was more prevalent back in the day, yeah. <laughs> and then when she's talking to her sister about how like how great it is to be held by a guy and they're all just so sweet, when, I guess that was before the parking garage thing. Not that, I mean, that guy didn't force her, like she he, she ran away and she didn't stop him. But I was like, I mean, it's not like they've all been sweet, but. Yeah, it's like she has this idealized, man based off of her her posters right a little bit like she has this dream of a man who's going to take her away from her boring life with her boring parents and her boring sister and show her the world and be sweet to her and make all her dreams come true and i think that's all right out of the story right like that that's that's how connie is and arnold friend shows up as the manifestation of that desire but like a wolf in sheep's clothing version of it right Let's actually, let's get to that part now. So I I don't have a full summary for this part. So we'll just say like, it plays out very similarly to what Luke already explained in the short story. But let's talk about some of the differences. Like, did this work for you uh, in comparison to the short story? How did you guys feel about this part? I mean, the very end obviously has differences, but her Mm -hmm. interaction with Arnold Friend, I was impressed with how similar it was to the short story. So I thought they followed it really well. I really liked the way he like, he would like flop around and he like rode this door out. So he had some of that weird movement. I could have maybe done with a little more of it, but there's always a chance that it gets a little too, too kind of jokey. But like, I I felt like the stuff he was doing was working as being kind of creepy. When he was like freaking out on Ellis or whatever the name. Yeah. yeah. Ellie or like screaming at him. Mm -hmm. Ellie. Yeah. Uh, Screaming at him from the car. Like that's when things started to like really sink in. Like, Oh, this guy's unhinged. Something's going on here. Uh, I was I was surprised at just how faithful this scene was. Like you said, nearing the end, I'm going to read some more synopsis of some things that are different. But yeah, it was almost verbatim for a lot of it. 
Yeah. Like they use it as a script, the short story as a script. So, so before we get away from it, because I have a lot of thoughts about this this meeting, I did want to ask you about, to me, this this movie and the story and up to a lesser extent, but especially the movie, is trying to say something about the position of young women in our society, and they begin to sort of draw attention from men. And there's like a power that can give them, but also an extreme danger and how they are young and perhaps ill-equipped to deal with that. Um, But how also that power can be intoxicating, right? Because I think that's like Connie is sort of, she feels that power and that's why she feels like she's more important and, and deserves a better life. She's sort of been told this by society. I don't know. It felt like they're they're trying to say something about this. And I, I wanted to get your take on that, Laura. Like, what do you think this movie's saying about that? Or did you think about that at all for, for this thing? I mean, as far as the, like giving her this entitlement, this sense of power. Uh, yeah, I guess that wasn't something that had come to mind right away as I was watching it. But there is the scene where her friend comes and she's like, there's a guy asking for you. And she's like, let me guess. It was Eddie and he's obsessed with me and blah, blah, blah. Like she's very conceited about herself. And she's on display all the time, right? Like she goes to the to the drive-in and she's dancing around and she, everybody's looking at her and she knows that. And I thought it was interesting. So yeah, she's wearing the skirt. She has this corset thing she's wearing. But then when they're sitting at the diner, like no one is coming up to them at first. And the, the way she's like hunched over, almost like she's embarrassed like that she's wearing this. And so those conflicted feelings where you want the attention and that feeling of power from getting the attention and feeling like I can get guys to do whatever I want when... I mean, really, you can't, but um, yeah, I forget where I was going with this, but <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's complicated, right? Yeah. And I thought the movie did a good job showing those complicated emotions. And also the scene going back to when the guy takes her out to look over at the city and she like is opens up to him. I forget what she says, but, you know, she says something about, you know, her wants about I don't remember she wants to travel anymore, or something, but, right? She wants to go yeah, somewhere, something yeah. like she's wanting to like open up and be vulnerable with someone on like an intimate level, but not a sexual level. And then he just goes in and kisses her and then mm-hmm. that's all it is. And so that too, where she's using her body to get attention, but she says how like, she's not interested in having sex. She just likes being with men and maybe she's just wanting to have that intimate intimacy that's not sexual. But the way you get that is by showing off your body and, yeah. but then guys take it a different way. But it's also like to think about how, I, I mentioned this earlier, how, Specific, and I think this story, because it's about Arnold Friend, is about like older men and how they're viewing underage girls. And the, like, it doesn't matter, you know, she's dressing how she wants to and she wants to express herself and all this stuff. And it's, it, 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 there's a commentary being made about like, she can't go anywhere without that perception of sexuality around any men and specifically older men. And like, there's just that perspective on, on display here. Yeah. And, that, and that's why I said earlier where it, I, I felt like it was getting a little victim blamey at times um, because it felt to me like the movie was wanting me to feel like she shouldn't be dressing like this. Did you get that? Like, like she, like she was, I don't know. Like it was like, oh, she's she's inviting danger by doing this, and um, I don't know how to feel about that. But it, it felt like that was the kind of the stance that the movie was taking. But maybe maybe I'm wrong about that. To me, it was like the the idea that she couldn't dress like that without being perceived that way. Less than like I felt like the movie was saying like, don't dress like this. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. 
Like, like just that that's the society we live in that like young girls have to feel like they're in like could be in danger just for by the way that they dress. But but I didn't think that the filmmaker herself was saying, like, don't dress like this because it's dangerous. What about you, Laura? Yeah. Yeah, I think I agree with that where it's like, I mean, maybe she is like a warning, like, don't dress like this if you're not because, yeah, the world we live in. If you're feeling confident and want to wear a certain outfit, people are, men specifically, are going to interpret it in a different way. And so you can't be safe to wear some outfit you feel confident in because they're not going to look at you and be like, wow, a confident woman. They're going to look at you and think all these other thoughts and think like, oh, well, she must be interested in, you know, having sex or with something because she wouldn't wear that outfit otherwise, right? Right. Well, and, and part of this is, I think, our modern view of it versus what I think was pretty prevalent in the 80s which was when women were being sexually assaulted often and i mean this still goes on today but like the you know further back you go the more prevalent it is what was she wearing you know what what was she, what did she do to invite this and there's a lot of victim blaming that goes on and um it felt like the movie was engaging with that in some way and i guess i just again i felt a little unclear about what the ultimate message was um, and, you know, again, maybe that's just me. Um, but I, I wanted to, I wanted to know, like, what, what is this movie saying about this? And I kept kind of coming up short of, of being able to feel like I, I, I arrived at a, a specific point. Maybe that's okay. I don't know. Anyway, let's get back to Arnold Friend. Sorry to sort of muddy the waters there. It's just, I felt like that was a thematic thing that had been going on for the first hour of this movie, right? There's an hour of movie before Arnold Friend shows up at the house. Um, but yeah, I mean, he shows up, he's got the numbers. Um, I noticed he's got, he has a, uh, he has a symbol that's like a, a, a hourglass with some wings. And then he has the same symbol tattooed on his arm. Um, so that felt important. And I do not believe was in the story, um, unless I'm misremembering it. So maybe an added. Yeah. And the story, it says that on his car, it's like, uh, like a pumpkin with sunglasses oh, yeah. or something it's like, like a that. Like a grinning pumpkin yeah. or something. Yeah. Yeah. So the time, like the hourglass, right? Like, is that maybe a something to do with death or I don't know, right? I, when I think see an hourglass, it makes me think of death. And there's also like, like angel wings on it. Yeah. Fallen angel, maybe. I don't know. Maybe that's another sort of Satan reference. Yeah. Right. We talked about some of the filmmaking as it, as it gets more tense here. And I like the shots that were through the screen. Uh, I oh, thought yeah. were really intimate, like super like he's looking sort of towards camera a little bit but his eye line is off and she's like looking straight out so we're getting his face and he's like he's doing like this like puppy dog act kind of thing where he's like acting like he's so he's just like i just love you so much and yeah. all these other things that he's just telling her to get her to to come along and um that barrier of the screen though i thought was really effective in showing like how thin that yeah. her safety really was mm -hmm. and, and you know like how close he was and how looming it was such a great detail and, and, from the story yeah. right? she, she yeah. wants to lock the door and he's like this is a screen door it's a screen door yeah mm -hmm. um i wanted to ask you so in in the story i would argue that this is a such a great example of how to subtly build tension to a boiling point that it is often taught in school uh you know as as, as sort of this exemplar of this technique like we study it right do you think that this movie achieves something similar in this scene? Does Is this a movie that you would show to somebody in this scene and go like, look at the way she crafts tension? I definitely think the book did a better job. Uh, having said that, yeah, definitely 
as as I was watching the movie, I definitely felt tense during this particular scene. You know, leading up to it, not quite so much. It's the story where, like you said, the story just keeps uh, dropping different hints and building the tension, whereas the movie felt like it just take a took a sudden turn. <laughs> um, so yeah, I I thought it was well done, but I think the book did a better job at building that tension. I would agree that it it was better done in in the novel, but I I, I think this is really well done. I thought that the tension was definitely there. Um, it's off-putting the way I think yeah. some of the ways that it was shot are off-putting. Uh, the performance is really good by uh, a- a- in terms of selling us on how weird and creepy and all-knowing this this character is. And then, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm thinking specifically about the moments as it gets more and more intense. You know, the, the tension is definitely there. But when it gets really intense, I love the shot of her like cowering behind the stairs and we can see out yeah. to the screen door and she's got the phone in hand. Like, I thought that was amazing. It's the one time where his, but, his foot like looked kind of weird in the boot he was wearing, too, which I thought was a nice little yeah. nod to the story. Because I kept I kept waiting for him to like have a herky jerky walk that he didn't quite have. Um, but he did a couple of like flailing things. Yeah. Like when he was like mirroring her, that was, that was a creepy moment. Yeah, for sure. Really was. Yeah. Imposing. So I, I mean, I, I, I liked it. I, and, and I, it sounds like I'm being kind of critical, I guess. Cause if you, if you read into the way I'm leading you, um, but I guess it was to say like, again, this, this story, this interaction is, has stuck with me since I read it in college as a absolute standout moment. He keeps, you know, asking her a question. She keeps saying no, and eventually it turns into a yes, but the 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 course of that journey is a masterclass in developing tension and conveying a panic in the in the main character's mind um, that that I think is worth teaching in class. And they do um, this movie doesn't quite achieve that for me as good as it was. I think if this scene was was the kind of thing that they were showing in film school, then we wouldn't have to look it up in the Criterion Channel. It would be on every service because this would be a more well-known movie. Um, so it's like, it sounds bad because it sounds like I'm damning it a little bit, but like it just, to me, it didn't quite rise to that high, that 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 achievement that the story really got. Um, as good as it was, and, and I'm not trying to take away from it, it is good, it is a well-regarded film. We talked about Rotten Tomatoes and everything, you know, whatever that's worth. Um, it's a well-regarded movie. It just, um, I, I was left a little wanting because of how much respect I have for the short stories uh, version of this scene. I can I can see that. So I do have this last little section that I need to read here. When she returns home, and this is specific to the film, so we'll, we'll have some- she, le- she leaves with him yeah. and then returns home. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When she returns home, Connie is bewildered and disheveled and informs Arnold that she never wants to see him again. It is left ambiguous whether or not he raped her. It is implied that she isn't the same person she was at the beginning, at the film's beginning. After her family returns home, her mother tearfully apologizes to her for slapping her earlier that day. But Connie reassures her that everything is all right. At the film's ending, she doesn't inform June about what happened, but dances with her to James Taylor's recording of the song Handyman. She also says something about not even being sure if it really happened or if she like dreamt it. Yeah. Which I wondered if do you think that was like a legitimate attempt by the the filmmaker to position this as all maybe it was a dream? Like maybe this didn't really happen? I think it was a wink and a nod at the at the source material that people have been reading it that way. I but don't it's think ambiguous in a saying. different way, if so. This isn't really ambiguous to me. He goes like like in the same way that you said like you kind of can you can kind of continue the story on your own based on the context that we've gotten. She goes with him 
clearly something happened that changed her. I think it's obvious that he raped her. This is her like tragically coming back and having like her childhood and her home and everything seems different now, you know? <sighs> okay. Yeah, I What do you think, Laura? <laughs> <laughs> Which by the way, there's a leaf blower going outside. Uh, I hope that's not affecting the audio. I just but... heard it for the first time. So as far as her being like telling the sister, like maybe it didn't even happen. I kind of took that to be her like when you go through some kind of trauma, like how you cope with it is maybe you convince yourself like maybe it didn't even happen. Maybe I'm going crazy. So I sort of like she's also trying to cover up because the sister is like you went with him and she doesn't want to worry her sister. So she's like, maybe it didn't even happen. But then also like she's going to try to convince herself that maybe it didn't even happen as her way to deal with it. Because also, I was reading that Laura Dern, when she was like promoting this film, you know, she was 18. And when people asked her, she was adamant, like, they just went for a drive, like nothing happened. It was just a drive. And it wasn't until like in 2019, when she was working on a movie about a character who was coming to terms with an event that they realized um, was sexual abuse. And that was when Laura Dern realized like, oh, when Smooth talked, that wasn't just a drive. And so she kind of came to terms with what her character had gone through. And so then she changed her mind on what happened. Interesting. But, and I thought it was interesting because the movie, when she comes back, I thought Laura Dern's performance was so amazing as someone who clearly has been changed and is seeing things differently. And so it's funny to see that scene and think about how Laura Dern in her head <laughs> wasn't admitting. How did the director give any sort of direction that wasn't like you've just been through an extremely traumatic event and then her yeah. have that performance? Because I went back mm -hmm. and after I read this, I had to watch the scene again to see like how she reacted. And I was like, I just don't understand how there was a disconnect here. Like it seems yeah. like she's acting as if she was just raped. Which again, maybe it comes down to the character wanting, not wanting to believe it happened. And Laura Dern, the actress, even not wanting to believe it happened to her. Right, character. yeah. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I, I have some just, I have conflicted thoughts about this this new ending, right? Well, we did talk about the ambiguity that we liked yeah. in, the, in the short story. So how yeah. did you feel about the decision? So, so, so the, the friend gets left behind. He stays at the house. We see scenes of him walking around in her house and like touching her things. And then he's not there when the car returns. I didn't see him at least. And there's no indication that they know someone's been in the house. So that actually kind of backs up the idea that this didn't really happen. Um, the, the friend is just an, a, a, a thing that turns it up to 11 of creepiness for me in the story. And I was so shocked when the friend wasn't in the car because that completely changes the context of the, of the drive. Because again, if you read about the real guy, you know, he and his friend both assaulted this first victim and, um, in a really horrific way. And, I was surprised by that change because it felt like it softened it. And then we see them go out and we see the car sitting in the field and they're not in the car anymore, which implied to me that they got out together. So again, it, the implication of some sort of assault. I don't know. It, 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 she, I liked her performance, but it, it almost felt too subdued for someone who just went through something like this. It's a weird thing to criticize. Cause like I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know. But I, I guess what, what in, in my defense, I read, I listened to the podcast episode about this guy before I watched the movie. So that was my background going into the film, just like the awful things this real person did. So the idea that someone could, could experience even a, a percentage of that and then come back and not just be like a complete 
mess of like traumatized, you know, I don't know. And also like she tells him, she's like, I don't want to ever see you here again. And the fact that she had like the audacity, I guess, to say that to him too was kind of interesting. Because I mean, we're talking about an incredibly violent act, right? No matter no matter what the context and and such a violation that that the idea that she would have that power to say that to him was kind of surprising. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But like you said about maybe it didn't even happen because he drops her off ahead of like, so the parents don't see her getting dropped off because she just walks. The parents have no interaction with this, with this group. And in fact, no one else ever sees this guy. I don't think like she says, her friend says someone was asking about you, but we never learned for real who it was. Yeah. Maybe there, th- maybe there's more to the uh, him not actually existing in this story than I was thinking as well in the film. I feel like my brain may have just filled this in, but did he not? We don't see him in the car or get in the car at all at the end of the movie, like her, the friend. I don't remember seeing the friend again. Do, do you no. remember Laura? Me neither. Yeah. Okay. Which I was confused why he was like rummaging around the house, right. but yeah, and then we never see him again. Which makes him like this weird dangling thread of like, why was he in the car? Why was he talking about pulling out the phone? You know. He keeps saying it's not your date to him. And that was so creepy in the story. And he's like, it's not your date. You sit in the back. But like, why is he going to come along then? Was like the implication of something really dark happening. Um, And then, but yeah, then she just leaves him behind. It kind of completely changes that dynamic. Uh, It's weird. It's weird. I don't know. I I, I guess I just, the movie takes some, takes some um, liberties with the story at the end. It makes some decisions to tell a slightly different story which is fine. You know, as a filmmaker, you're certainly entitled to do that. Um, but I, I, I guess I didn't, wasn't in love with this version of the end. Um, and, and maybe it brings the focus back on the mother, but I didn't like how she changes her tune based off of basically nothing. She's like, I've been thinking about you all day and, re- and kind of like regretting what happened, which fine. But like, she doesn't know what has gone on with her daughter. My thought with that, I think you guys mentioned this, but maybe like her mother's intuition, she could sense that something was going wrong at home. And so it made her regret having slapped her earlier. But yeah, I don't know. I also, my other thought was like, maybe because she's gone through this traumatic thing with someone so evil and then coming home and it makes her like love and appreciate her family so much more and realize like how good they are. But again, yeah, so maybe she's like seeing them more positively than she was before and seeing them more clearly as good people. But then that, it's kind of weird for her to like learn a good lesson from this heinous and that act, was the, right? I thought that too, like the end scene with her and her sister connecting and dancing. And if, and if the message was like, oh, going through something like this can help you be more kind or empathetic or you know more selfless like that's she learned her lesson in a weird way yeah yeah so i felt conflicted about the movie as far as that goes because that's kind of how i No, you're right and thank you for like helping me figure out because i'm like there's just something about it that wasn't striking me the right way and i think you're touching on it like the ultimate feel of the movie at the end was like she she kind of reconnected with her family and was appreciating them more She's become a better person now because of this. And became yeah. a better person. And and having a sexual assault lead to that for a character is pretty fucked up. Yeah, agreed. I think we're all in agreement that we don't like the additional bit here. Yeah, for her to go back and to act the way that she did and then to like sort of have this happy ending felt just like nonsensical. It didn't feel like it fit within the tone of the story, really. Um, so, yeah. And, I, unless you see know. it all as a, as a dark dream. If you view it that way, I guess 
because it didn't really happen, then she's free to like take a lesson from it. But but you ha- kind of have to view it that way. Yeah, I guess my, I didn't view it that way. So <laughs> there's that. But yeah, I mean, for it to like for it to not feel really weird, I guess. Right. You know, I don't know. And, yeah. and, and it's hard to say because I do think it's ambiguous. Right. Like you, it, it, if you read it as something that really took place, then then that's the message of the of the movie seems to be. Like, at right. least she yeah. learned a lesson from this terrible event. Yeah, I don't like that. <laughs> uh, all right. I think we've gotten to the point now where we should talk about uh, what was better. We always do this at the end of the project. Yeah. So and, which do we prefer, the short story or the film? And we'll have you go last, Laura, uh, as our guest. Okay. James, how about you start out, actually? Sure. So I think going into this, I was going to do the thing that I do some of the time where I take a stand. This is in the Criterion Collection. It's clearly an important film. Uh, Laura Dern at the beginning of her career, Joyce Chopra, as we talked about, has a lot of great uh, like she she deserves to be involved and, and to be included in, in the Criterion Collection. So uh, really happy about those things. And I wanted to take the hardline stance and say, like, you know what? Short story was great, but I preferred the film, but I'm not going to. I think you guys have swayed me to the point that <laughs> we it's, convinced it's you. <laughs> clear. I will with a few of the things like s- some of the more supernatural potentially elements make me enjoy the story more. Uh, and then, you know, there's a little bit of that in, in this as well. But the ending, the ending kind of left a sour taste in my mouth. And uh, the performances were a standout. Uh, I think some of the filmmaking was incredible. Fun, like snapshot of the 80s. But this story feels like pretty, pretty timeless in terms of like uh, a coming a, a weird coming of age story in a, in a really dark way. And also just the way that it, you know, interpreted a lot of those transitional periods of um, so I'm taking the short story in this case. Okay, yeah, um, I, I I'm solidly in the camp of the short story here. I I went into this movie wanting for it to be a hidden gem that I was going to be shouting from the rooftops like this is a great movie everyone needs to see. Um, and ultimately, it was good. I can see why it was fairly well regarded, but I, I'm going to point people to the story over the film. Um, other than you know, like you said, there's some, some good performances here. It's a well made movie, but. Um, the messaging got muddy. I think the relationship with the mother, I was unclear what they were trying to say. And the final sort of reconciliation didn't feel earned through the course of what really happened in the story. It, it, to me, it was just too messy. And uh, ultimately, it left me a little cold. So I'm going to take the story. What about you, Laura? Uh, yeah, I was. I enjoyed the movie a lot. And especially, I'd recommend it to people to see Laura Dern. And I thought Treat Williams was great. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, I was like, Treat Williams? Like, that can't really <laughs> be his Treat. first name. But it's actually his middle name. And then as an actor, he took it as his first. But I was really impressed with his role, too. Uh, but, yeah, overall, I did like the short story better. And I enjoyed seeing more of Connie. But it's not really necessary. Like, the short story, we just get a small snapshot into who she is. And that was enough, and it did the job. So yeah, I would say I like the short story better. It's funny that the channel Why the Book Wins is here, yeah. and the book wins in this case. <laughs> yeah, uh, I wanted to ask really quickly too, just just as a for my own curiosity, like, have you found that that doesn't tend to be the case always? Have you found situations where you take the movie or you prefer movies? I think I think the book does win over fifty percent of the time. But yeah. for example, the month of April, I covered four different ones. 
and the movie won each time. So <laughs> it's definitely not always the book. And ideally, should be an asterisk next to that. <laughs> yeah, ideally, I would have wanted a title that had book and movie, but why the book wins just had a nice ring to it. But well, not to mention like taking a hardline stance. We've learned like taking a stance and saying something like that tends to get people excited, you yeah. know. And then and then like it generates debate. Right. Yeah. Yeah, which is good. Yeah. Online. And I do usually read the book first. And so I feel like that kind of can cause a bias too, which yeah. maybe it's not totally fair. But but there's been plenty of times when the movie, I would like the movie better. And I love this movie too. So maybe not love, but I really enjoyed this <laughs> right. movie for what it was. And it is one I would recommend. Cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I guess we should go ahead and announce, because I think we forgot to say it earlier, that we are doing a crossover onto your show uh, where we will be talking about Secret Window, uh, short story, I believe, and film, uh, and, which, I, which I have read. Uh, no, I've seen before, but not read. So I'm excited to do that. Have you read or seen it, uh, James? I think I've seen it. Is that the, is that the movie with Johnny, Johnny Depp? Depp. Yeah. yeah, I have seen it. Yeah, long ago, though. I don't remember it. So that'll be yeah. cool. Yeah, I thought it was fitting to have you guys on for a Stephen King one since you guys cover a lot of him. Yeah, he's, a, he's kind of a staple of ours. So. He was our first project. Yeah, yeah it's, yeah. it's kind of got that affinity for us because he was our first and continues to be relevant on the podcast. Yeah, so mm -hmm. I, I do invite our listeners to um, go check out our episode we'll be doing with Laura uh, whenever, whenever it is it comes out on your channel. It'll be uh, like the second week in May. Second week in May. Okay. So, t you know, keep an eye out for that and check out her channel in general. Look at some of those book uh, uh, unboxing kind of videos you do of the of your different editions because some of those are really cool. I'm excited to check out your Nightmare Alley coverage because I saw the film and I didn't even realize it was based on a book, which happens to me all the time. So, yeah. mm. Which, not to get on too many tangents, but Nightmare Alley, I went into that book I knew it was Guillermo del Toro and it was called Nightmare Alley and a carnival. Mm -hmm. So I was like, there must be monsters and something. And then that's not what it was at all. So reading that book, I was like, man, this is not what I expected. Yeah. But yeah, both so good. And man, awesome. that last scene in the movie, I, I was yeah. blown away. Oh, haven't, man, so haven't read it or seen it. So, I'm, you know, hopefully we can get <laughs> to that one at some point here, James. Well, we just want to say thank you again for coming on. Uh, this was a lot of fun. Uh, I'm glad that we got to have you on for something. I think this was a, a good uh, a good one to have your perspective on, honestly. Uh, I was thinking that, too, when I was watching the movie, yeah. that it probably works well that you have a woman yeah. here to talk about this. <laughs> Sorry to pick something that was so heavy at times, but. Uh, oh, no, that's fine. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> So also, we wanted to give you a chance, if you want to plug any other avenues where people can find you besides your YouTube channel, uh, where else can they find you? So the only social media I have is Instagram. That's really the only one I do. And then also whythebookwins.com. You can find links to the podcast, to YouTube, to Instagram, all of that stuff. But yeah, YouTube, Instagram, podcast, podcasting platforms. All why the book wins. Yep, okay. by the book wins. Yeah, I'll link all of that in the show notes. Um, it, you know, so you can just go go away on your phone and click on it um, and find it. Uh, thanks again for coming on, and we will see you over on your show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited for that. Yeah, looking forward to it. All right, if you enjoyed this episode, I would love for you to let us know in the form of a rating and review on whatever app you chose to listen on. Uh, it's a good way to get the word out. Also, tell a friend. Um, if you know anybody who's like read. Joyce Carol Oates or, or has seen this movie, definitely tell them about this podcast. Yeah, and make sure to follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of those at ink to film And if you'd like to support this podcast on Patreon, uh, it's patreon.com slash ink to film We have a bunch of bonus content on there, including what I think we're going to do this month is going to be a watch of Clueless, 
uh, is our, our sort of Emma-adjacent adaptation, former adaptation. Um, we've done lots of other uh, random projects from The Egg by Andy Weir to, you know, The Exorcist 2 and other uh, fun things like that. So if that sounds interesting to you, check out our Patreon. We'd love to have your support. And thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. All right. And uh, thanks again f- to Laura for coming on. And just a reminder, check us out on Why the Book Wins uh, YouTube channel and podcast for our secret window coverage, which will be coming out in May. So uh, until next time, keep adapting.